1: Hi, I'm Stephanie Everett.
2: And I'm Zach Glazer. And this is episode 434 of the Lawyers Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, I interview Labster Greg Siskin about building apps and using technology in his law firm.
1: Today's show is brought to you by Gavel, Posh Virtual Receptionists, and Clio. We wouldn't be able to do our show without their support, so stay tuned because we're going to tell you more about them later on.
2: So, Stephanie, we just got back from Tech Show and... As I, I imagine people could have predicted, AI, chat GPT, chat bots, all that stuff was all over the place at Tech Show.
1: Yeah. And I'll, okay, I'm going to confess to everyone, you know, probably three weeks ago, I was like, why is everyone just talking about this? I don't understand it. I don't know. Really, is this the big thing that's going to change our life? Or is this like Y2K or something? Right. Right,
2: right. yeah, and
1: then here's the confession part. I actually did a webinar that was a two- hour webinar where they took us through real live examples and showed us how these tools can actually work in real life. And now I'm hooked mm. and I've been using it every day and I've told the whole team they have to use it and I'm creating a <laughs> lab workshop to teach lawyers how to use it. and I'm like, everyone should be using this and I've become. So I went from weird skeptical, I don't understand this to raving fan. In about two weeks period of time.
2: <laughs> I, you know, I, I think that's, that's kind of indicative of, of the technology. You know, you look at some of these other technologies that have come out like NFTs and some blockchain. And when we go and look into it, when somebody who is skeptical goes and looks into it, they continue to say, okay, but what's the use case? Okay. But what's the use case? But you went to one online presentation and you've got tons and tons and tons of use cases out of that. I have been using it. I haven't written anything without using artificial intelligence since the chat GPT was released publicly.
1: Yeah. So maybe we should break it down for people because like if you're like me, the two weeks ago me and wondering, okay, what the heck are they talking about? I think it's important Mm -hmm. that we break it down and say there's kind of two main type. Is that the right word to say? Two categories or types of AI in these different tools that are out there?
2: I think categories is probably better because when we when we get into types of AI, we we start to get pretty technical okay. in like definition of the AI. But what we're talking about are kind of two approaches of use cases in a in a sense.
1: Yeah. And so what's the first one?
2: So we have generative AI, which is something that creates something. It's a it's a program that creates something. So you give it a prompt and say, give me a picture of in the style of Monet of the White House. And then it generates out of nothing or seemingly thin air, this picture that is in the style of Monet that is of the White House. And so it, it creates something. So it's generative.
1: Yeah. And it can do it with pictures, images. It can do it with text. Like I've been asking it to... Create interview questions for me for this podcast in the style of Howard Stern, because I think he is a cool interviewer, even though I don't like all the stupid stuff he does. Not a fan, but I think he gives a good interview. It's been really interesting to see what does it think Howard Stern should ask the next podcast guest. And I don't always stick with them. It's just a first draft.
2: And I think that's one one of the things to keep in mind here is that it is a rare case where You give a prompt to something that is artificial intelligence, and then it gives you exactly what you were looking for, or even gets it right for that matter, because there's no concept of correctness inside the quote unquote mind of the AI bot or application. Yeah. The other way that that we can go is extractive AI, something that summarizes something. Fastcase is using this right now where they're taking a case and essentially briefing it in a small little box in the corner and saying, here's what you should get out of this case. So it's taking this four corners kind of world of information and summarizing it for people and presenting that in a way that is, that is easy to understand. We, we also have taking things from legalese to regular layman speak as well. That would be something that was extractive or, or summarizing sort of AI.
1: Yeah. So I could see a lot of use cases for that in a law firm. Like you may have a huge deposition transcript and you may feed Mm. it into the tool and say, summarize this for me or find, tell me where this witness talks about this concept or something. I mean, these are the kind of tools that we're going to have available to us now.
2: Right. And I think it's important to, to keep that in mind that we can be pretty creative here. The idea is getting the basics in our heads, getting our minds wrapped around what the basics of what these tools can do and then being creative about them. I've seen some scenarios where English professors will have ChatGPT or something like that write an essay and then they'll give students the essay that was written by ChatGPT to then edit. Well, that's an interesting way to interact with the AI and to kind of bring it into your classroom. It you know, whether that's something that needs to be done by everybody or not, you know, but being creative about what the capabilities are or being thoughtful about what the capabilities are and then creative about what
1: we could do with it, I think is pretty important here. Yeah. I'll give everybody one last tip. So now, you know, some early prompts you can use to get started on it. You know, a lot of lawyers struggle, like they think they should be writing blog posts or some kind of content to put out into the world. And they're just struggling either with what to write about, what to write. This is your new best friend. So first you can go to it and say, generate 10 ideas for a blog post for a family law firm to write regarding someone who's considering a divorce. Obviously, I just kind of came up with that on the fly, but it's going to then generate a list of 10 ideas for you or questions that somebody who's considering a divorce may have. Well, now you got some topics. Now you could take one of those topics and say, yeah, this topic kind of sounds good or it's close. And then you could ask it now, create a 200 word blog post, blah, blah, blah. And you give it these prompts And it will then spit out this first draft for you. Again, is it going to be perfect? No, we already have some instances where it has made up laws and made up quotes. I feel like compelled to say that, like do your fact checking people just because this thing spit out something doesn't mean it's perfect. It's learning, but it's going to give you a first draft. And we have a rule in lab, you know, we call it the no first draft rule for a lot of the lawyers we work with. Because they're at a point now where they really shouldn't be writing first drafts. They need a team. Like they should be in editing mode, not starting from blank pieces of paper. And as a small law firm where you may not have the money to have a lot of staff and maybe you don't have a marketing team and someone that can just generate all these things for you, here's a new tool that's currently free that you could use to generate some first drafts. And of course, you're going to lay eyes on it and edit it, but it's going to get you a lot further along than staring at a blank page for hours.
2: It absolutely will. It absolutely will. Now, here is my conversation with Greg. Hi, I'm Greg Siskind.
3: I am an immigration lawyer in Memphis, Tennessee. I've been doing this work for 33 years, and I also am a founder of a legal tech spinoff company from our law firm called Wiesellaw.ai, and our law firm is Siskind Susser.
2: Greg, thanks for being with me. It's funny that we're doing this via the internet because we actually are both in the same city. It's rare that I, I actually get to talk with somebody too much that is, in the, that is in Memphis with me, a fellow Memphian.
3: We're it. We are Legal Tech Memphis. <laughs> this is, that's exactly group. right.
2: <laughs> we just did this at the end of our, our regular meeting. So, yeah, I, I appreciate you talking to me about this. And kind of thinking about that, about legal technology in the law, obviously, you've been... Now, on the forefront, you've been the Legal Tech Memphis, along with, with some others. I don't want to you know, just say that it's just you, but you've been doing this type of stuff for a, a while. I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got, you got a lot of time left in, in doing this, I think. But you've been doing this for, I mean, you said you've been practicing for 33 years. You've had a website since 1994, right? That is correct. I think you were saying to me earlier before we got on the air here that that website is older than some of the, the lawyers in your firm, which is pretty uncommon <laughs> even now.
3: Yeah. Well, actually the firm and the website were started together. I was at a big law firm in Nashville, actually, is where the firm started. I, I married somebody from Memphis and we relocated here shortly afterwards. But I gave my notice and uh, at this big firm and I spent the next two months, basically working on a website and then uh, the website opened when the law firm opened.
2: Okay. That's kind of a nice little entry there, you know, saying like, yes, we've been tech since the, the beginning, because when I think of your practice, I do think of, of being kind of tech forward. I, frankly, I went to a, one of the museums here the other day because you, your firm was was noted in the in an AI exhibit that was there for your yeah. use of technology. <laughs> that that was really neat. I had never been to a museum where I had known somebody that was actually in the exhibit. But you have been doing this. It, it is synonymous in my mind with your firm. I think the question that I have a lot of times is how do you go about doing that? You know, it's easy to say, I want to be tech forward. It's easy to tell people. Go out and keep tech on your mind. You know, read blogs and and all that stuff. How do you approach that?
3: Well, I mean, generally speaking, we're looking at like, I mean, what are we hiring the tech to do on there? What what problem mm-hmm. are we solving when we're talking about introducing technology? I mean, it's a little different today, where it's sort of like you know, the whole practice is basically centered around one tech or another. Whether it's like right. using Microsoft Word and you know Outlook versus and and being on a Zoom call and. The rest of the stuff that happens. But in terms of, I guess there's tech, and then there's, you may, for example, have a, you know, do things manually with tech, like writing a Word document over and over right. and over again. So it's not just tech, it's figuring out how do you leverage technology to work faster, better, cheaper. You know, those are the three things you're in. We're in, serv- in a service business. and my father, who was a, uh, he had an advertising agency when I was growing up, and he was in a service business. When I started the firm up, he gave me a lot of good marketing advice, and he always said, "You can do three things in a service business: you can deliver high quality work, you can deliver it quickly, or you can deliver it uh, inexpensively or expensively." He said, "But if you want to be inexpensive, do high quality work, and do it quickly, you're going to go out of business if you try and do all three of those things. Pick mm-hmm. two on there, but." The challenge to that is, and, the, and and I don't think this was original advice to him, is that with technology, you can actually do all three. You mm. can lower your costs, you can have it do it at a higher quality, and you can do it more quickly than you could without technology. So, you know, what we're looking for in a lot of cases are where are the pain points in our practice in terms of, you know, in the substantive legal work that we're doing, things that we are spending too much time and, spinning our wheels on and that brings up things like document automation and it brings up good systems and all that some of which i guess we'll probably talk a little bit about when we talk about case management but mm-hmm. some of that there and then there's also practice management automation as well not just on the substantive way we handle the cases but in terms of like just internal business issues that we have to deal with where are the pain points there and a lot of the stuff that you know we're working on is usually after really trying to observe our practices and figure out where we have breakdowns and what is possible. And we're always on the lookout for like what new tech is out there that can help us do that. And you know, fortunately, in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of really cool things that are allowing us to go DIY mm-hmm. as opposed to necessarily having to go out and shop and buy a product. So that's kind of how our company ended up, our AI ended up spinning off, which is that there was now these no-code and low-code software solutions where we could build out products essentially for our own use mm-hmm. that would be for others as well. But we were not a software development company. So that's not uh, the way we ended up approaching it. But the fact is that these products were easy enough to customize and solve what we wanted. And so lately, that's where we've been going. But we've tried to, you know, all along, try and figure out where technology could speed things up and improve the process.
2: I like that idea of, you know, approaching it from what is it we need something to do? Hiring technology. Because we have a tendency a lot of times in my mind to think about tech as something new and technology in a law firm as something new. And it's decidedly not. At any time in practicing law, people have been using something that's more advanced than others in using boilerplate things, in creating processes that allowed people to go faster. And so this idea of just using the technology that exists and kind of comes up to enhance the practice and try to get i think try to get as close to being able to do those three things as possible quality inexpensive and you know quickly right so in doing that you've you've built out this visa law.ai that's not part of your practice and i think this is something that's fascinating to people a lot of times is that they like having a law firm but they also can say, "Oh I'd, I'd love to build the technology. I'd love to build the practice management software that that I am using. What's your experience with that? like how do you how did you kind of come about? You dipped into it a little bit, but how did you come about saying, okay, well, we are going to go from Cisco and CISR to visalaw.ai now
3: yeah, I mean I, th- I think our our company is a little bit different in terms of um, you know maybe than others because it really sort of builds from a um, our firm's long history with publishing and writing. Hmm. So I have uh, the part I didn't mention at the beginning when we were talking about how I you know left the big law firm. I was able to leave a big law firm in 1994 because I had a I was a co-author of a book on an environmental law topic of all things. It wasn't on immigration law, and okay. it's on a topic that I left. Decades ago, but it made a lot of money that book on on royalties, and that funded my departure. Basically, I lived off those royalties for the first year of the practice. But over the years, I've spent a lot of energy on writing, and I'm now I think eight books that I've written in my career. Oh, so wow. You know, one of the businesses that we uh, spun on is the technology company I mentioned because obviously that's probably most interesting for for your listeners. But I also, we spun off a publishing house after I had done books with Lexus. And uh, the first one was with the company that uh, was acquired by West. And I did a book for the ABA and I did a book for Sherm. Anyway, so I also chaired the ABA's book publishing program. So I learned a lot about the business side Okay. publishing. So I kind of saw both sides of it and decided we could do that ourselves. So with that being said, one of the things that we're trying to Leverage was how can we leverage content that we're creating in technology? Because I think that that's something that makes the stuff we're working on potentially a lot more valuable to the people that we potentially be selling it to. So, what really sort of changed things for us was when maybe it was 2015, 2016, when the um, first low code AI decision tree kind of products were coming out. So Neotologic was one, and that that's one that we, we, we used for a while. And then uh, we, we ended up switching to After Pattern. But basically, those are products where you could marry good content with a uh, something that was highly useful. So we had a, um, you know, what I was initially doing was developing eligibility advisors in these tools, just little apps that helped you figure out if you would qualify for this immigration benefit or that immigration benefit. And then those are actually fairly easy in terms of a, uh, you know, in structure to do those. And then we got a lot more advanced as we started to really get to know what we were doing. Now we actually have people at at the office who just do nothing but work in these apps and really know them really well and can do a lot of stuff that we can't do alone. But, you know, the document generation capabilities in these products and, you know, some of the things that we're doing, but they all come from content. So that's the secret sauce for us is that uh, even though we're mostly aiming at at other lawyers as far as what we're building, but also some of it's consumer facing as well. So from our perspective, in terms of why we're building, the other part of it is it does actually help the law firm that the lawyers in the law firm are actually app authors, Mm -hmm. but the apps themselves are designed to actually be profitable and have their own customer base outside of the firm.
2: I think that the law firms being the app authors, and uh, just to kind of clarify some things, the app in the, the after pattern sort of universe is, it's more than just document automation. It is a way of kind of solving a problem. It's, it's a way of doing something. How, how would you describe the, the app in order to kind of bring people along here?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, I'll give you one example of an app that we built that solved a really a major problem for immigration lawyers, and it's one that's becoming pretty popular. So there's something on an H-1B visa, and a lot of people have heard about that in the news, or they may be just familiar with it from their uh, companies that they work for. It's a visa for bachelor's level workers that are being uh, recruited by a company. And when you hire an H-1B worker, you have to make a filing with the Department of Labor online, and you have to post a notice either electronically or on a bulletin board, you have to create something called a public access file within 24 hours of filing the labor condition application online. And that has all kinds of wage information and benefits mm-hmm. information. And there's a lot of stuff that has to happen very quickly in that 24 hours. And immigration lawyers need their clients to basically do a lot of the heavy lifting on that because they are the ones that have that information and, they have to, and they're the ones that have to have the public access file in hand. So if the Department of Labor knocks on your door in the next day or any employee knocks on, you know, it, then you have to have it. So the mm-hmm. problem a lawyers had is that, you know, we we don't have enough time to get this thing done in 24 hours unless the client is really cooperating with us and getting everything. So okay. a lot of lawyers just send this to their client with an email saying you need to put all these things in there and have this thing done within 24 hours. And that may happen and it may not happen. Right. There's a lot of non-compliance in that particular space. So what we we discovered was there was this area of immigration law where it was a big pain point. There was you know, very much a lot of time pressure, a lot of things have to happen. And then you kind of keep your fingers crossed that your clients are doing what they're supposed to be doing. But we also have seen over years that a lot of those clients didn't. And then when they got audited, they got slammed. So we were trying to see if there was a technology solution That would help us here. And we found it, which is we built an app that, first of all, it does the online posting and meets the legal requirements for that. It also takes the, either the client can do it or the law firm can do it, but, you know, asks a series of questions at five to 10 minutes, and then you upload a couple of things and it generates the public access file. It date stamps it. There's also notifications that have to go out to the workers that Mm that are affected All these things happen in the context of the app and something that takes five to 10 minutes now. And we also get, because it's date stamped, general counsel will get it, lawyer will get it, HR will get it. Everybody knows that it was done in a timely manner. It's stored electronically. So if the government comes and, you know, asks for it, it's all there. Mm -hmm. And that's something that turned a, you know, most lawyers didn't want to do it because it couldn't be done Inexpensively, and clients didn't want to pay for it. They wanted to, so they would end. Clients would end up saying, "We'll we'll do this because it's too expensive," and then the clients wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Now we're actually able to turn something into a profit center for the law firms that are doing, for our law firm and other firms that are using the software, where they can do it quickly and inexpensively, and you know, really something that is is not a pain point anymore for these firms. It's say the more they're doing of these, the happier they are because it's now someplace where they, they can charge enough to make money. So that's an example of something that's very specific to immigration law, but there there are these kinds of things in every area of law. And the nice thing was this product that we built, you know, is mostly you know there's not any novel technology we invented. We basically mm-hmm. took a platform that was already out there and really customized it to do a particular job, and it did it pretty well. You know, that's the, the takeaway I think is that there are a lot of these types of things that firms can do in automation that they can build to really make you know, something that's a pain in the neck, is something potentially that is a winner
2: financially for them instead of something that they uh, consider to be a drain on resources. Right. Exactly. Cause I think that that does those three things that you were talking about earlier, you know, it's inexpensive, it's quality and it's quickly. So that's an example of one of the sort of apps that that one can do the you know client is inputting information. The information is going into a database of sorts, and then things are kind of created from there, documents and right. other information. In building this, what is the lawyer's role in that? Because I guess the the question is, should I learn to code? But that seems a this is a no code or low code solution, but b that doesn't seem like the lawyer's place in this. You're talking about the lawyer designing the app.
3: Yeah, the lawyer designed it, but also there's a, you know, this is to comply with the regulatory requirements. So there's a lot of law here and Mm -hmm. you have to make sure that at the end of the day, the app is asking everything that's required. All the documents that are in there are the ones that are being done. There's a, something called an actual wage memorandum that has to be comes out of a very specific regulation and the app actually builds that document that has to comply with the law. I mean, at the end of the day, you have to produce something that when a Department of Labor auditor comes, that it is going to be considered to be complying with the DOL requirements. So, I mean, the lawyer is the most critical part of this, I think. You can always find somebody to design the tech around it, but without actually having somebody that really knows the law. On there, you haven't really solved the problem. And that's one of the things I think is first, you know great about legal tech is that that you really have a lot of opportunities for a lawyer, even if a lawyer is not that much of a techie, mm-hmm. that they can envision kind of how. I mean, they have to be more. I want somebody who's when we're designing things more is thinking from the consumer's perspective, the consumer of technology. How would a user, if you were using this, you know, and what would you want the experience to be? What do you want it ultimately? to be like at the end. And then we can, you know, either we can build it ourselves or we'll, we'll find somebody to help us with it. But that's usually from, that's, I think a lot of people have a trouble envisioning sort of like what they, how the technology would actually get them the result that they wanted. They may say, this is a pain in the neck. would be nice if there was some tech to make it easier, but they're not really to actually then go through the process of figuring out exactly how you want to design that to solve the problem is, I think, something that doesn't necessarily require somebody with coding as a background. Right. It just really, I think requires, uh, but lawyers, that's what we, we do. I mean, we kind of like basically think in decision trees and if this and that. And so, you know, you may not know Python, but you are basically the law is in itself kind of a code a computer code. It's so probably the original code.
2: <laughs> right. Right. It's a literally, and you know, case law as well. So Real quick, we need to take a break to hear from our sponsors, but when we come back, we'll be talking with Greg Siskin about his venture with Fastcase and how he's been using some of the stuff that he's created to get out there and help attorneys with their immigration practice broadly. The Lawyer's Podcast is brought to you by Posh Virtual Receptionists. As an attorney, do you ever wish you could be in two places at once? You could take a call while you're in court capture a lead during a meeting, or schedule an appointment with a client while you're elbow deep in an important case? Well, that's where Posh comes in. Posh is a team of professional U.S.-based live virtual receptionists who are available 24-7, 365. They answer and transfer your calls so you never miss an opportunity. With Posh handling your calls, you can devote more time to billable hours and building your law firm. And the convenient Posh app puts you in total control of when your receptionist steps in. So if you can't answer, Posh can. And if you've got it, Posh is always just a tap away. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Even better, Posh is extending a special offer to Lawyerist listeners. Visit posh.com forward slash Lawyerist to learn more and start your free trial of Posh Live Virtual Receptionist Services. That's posh.com forward slash Lawyerist. And by Cleo. What do solo and small firm lawyers with great client relationships have in common? They use cloud-based legal practice management software to run their law firms. This is just one finding from Clio's latest legal trends report. There's no getting around it. The fact is, when it comes to client expectations, standards are higher than ever before for lawyers. Proof is in the numbers. 88% of lawyers using cloud-based software report good relationships with clients. For firms not in the cloud, barely half can say that. That gap is significant. For more information on how cloud software creates better client relationships, download Clio's Legal Trends Report for free at clio.com slash trends. That's Clio spelled C-L-I-O dot com slash trends. And by Gavel. In the next 10 years, 90% of legal services will be delivered online by lawyers. Gavel, previously called Documate, is the software platform for lawyers to build client-facing legal products. With Gavel, collect client intake, feed that data into robust document automation flows, and collect payments to scale your practice. Companies like Landlord Legal, Just Tech, and Hello Divorce are built on Gavel for both internal and client-facing automation. Sign up for a free trial now at gavel.io slash partnership slash lawyerist and get $100 off your subscription. Or you can book a time at gavel.io slash partnership slash lawyerist to get a free consultation on incorporating automation into your practice. And we're back with, with Greg Siskin. Greg, before the break, we were talking about just the general idea of building apps and using technology in your practice to enhance, frankly, what we're able to do. Recently, you and uh, your team, the people at visalaw.ai, have kind of partnered with Fastcase, and I don't want to use a, a word inappropriately, but have gotten together with Fastcase in order to develop a case management system Specifically for immigration, can you kind of walk us through that a little bit, like where that came from and how you wind up going from building H one B apps to you know kind of a fully functional, hopefully, case management system?
3: Yeah. So this kind of goes back to what we were talking about before, as far as starting with the content and then working its way into the technology. Yeah. A project that my law partner Ari Sauer and I started a few years back is. We write a systems book for the American Immigration Lawyers Association that basically pulls a lot of the systems that our firm has been using over the years. But that systems book, which goes by the nickname The Cookbook, that book has a <laughs> is two volumes, and it's about 3,500 pages. Okay. So it's, it's small. fairly substantial. <laughs> but <laughs> we, we have about 25 – I think there's like 25 chapters. I don't know. It seems like it's always – in the process of uh, consuming us as far as updating it. But each chapter <laughs> is basically sort of like a overview of the law, then followed by everything that you need to handle that particular kind of case, whether it's checklists or question or client intake forms or templates and sample UX government forms and flow charts. And, and it's designed both for new lawyers as well as experienced lawyers that just want to have good systems in place and never really have it had it all documented. When we wrote that book, we knew that the end game for us was it was a technology play mm-hmm. that we were writing this book that would be essentially the script for a case management system, but also hundreds of apps, uh, eligibility right. advisors, kinds of things like that, that we can build basically document generation tools. So we had different products in mind, but one of them was case management because in case management, essentially you're tracking process steps. Right. And you are keeping track of data and you are having clients that are uploading documents into your system. I mean, there's a million things that case management systems do, but essentially it's all the stuff that we had in this book could be incorporated into a case management system that would be highly customized to match the content to the book. So we wrote this book. We knew that with publishing it through the American Immigration Lawyers Association, that it would be really seen by a lot of people. And it's been, a, the book's been a big seller and most immigration lawyers in the country are well aware of the book and probably have a lot of pretty sizable chunk of them have the book. So we saw if we built a case management system, and originally we were thinking about doing it on our own, building mm-hmm. a case management system. But if we built a case management system around the book, then it would give people that own the book a reason why they, you know, they would want the case management system to match the systems in the book. And maybe right it would also help book sales as well. If you were using the case management system, wouldn't it be great to have this two volume book on your desk? That's essentially all the systems that are in that case management system that are all there for you, as well as the the law itself on each one of these topics. So we were thinking about that. And then we connected with uh, the fast case folks who have a great product that they uh, already have in case management for bankruptcy called Next Chapter. Yeah. And- you know, we said, well, we don't need to reinvent the wheel as far as creating the tech behind a case management system. Our biggest priority is one is to make sure the case management system actually works for an immigration, you know, the way immigration lawyers would want, but also right. would have all of these systems that we wanted that would basically match our systems that we have. with we've also documented in the book, so it seemed like a really natural fit for us to partner with with the company that already had a pretty proven track record in case management, especially a federal case management, a federal practice area like bankruptcy, which has right. a lot of priorities to uh, immigration law. You know, and then we could have a, a role in basically developing a system that we really wanted for our law firm, but also <laughs> something that I thought the market really could use, which is a case management system that's really built around strong content. Mm-hmm. Most case management systems are basically, you know, they're databases, but they're not really Sort of like teaching you how to be a lawyer right we wanted this case management system was to also help teach people how to do
2: immigration law not just be a place to store their clients data you know i didn't expect to go this direction in talking with you but this idea of a case management system essentially being you know tracking process steps you know is fascinating i don't think we say that in so many words enough At lawyers, I'm constantly telling people, write your processes down, write your processes down, go to your systems, go to your systems. Mm -hmm. And we're also constantly looking at case management software and saying, well, which one's going to work for your systems? You know, which one's going to work for the way that you do your processes? Take your processes and figure out what the functionality is. But the actual systems, the actual case management software, a lot of times is built, like you said, as a database to track client information, to track some case information, to create project management mechanisms in there. And so it's a way of building these things instead of actually saying, okay, this case management software is your processes. So right. that in and of itself is, is interesting that that's what it is. This vision, this idea of having this case management software, this law practice management software with your actual book the processes and systems books sitting next to you, that in my mind is the ideal of how one should be doing this anyway. You know, and, and it doesn't have to be a physical book. It can be, you know, something on a on a wiki sure. or or something, you know, on OneNote or something like that. But having this physical software and this, you know, idea of your processes, kind of putting that together and that being how you operate your firm. That's the hope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
3: yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, everybody knows that you need a good system in place. I mean, I think the problem on it is it's just we're trying to just deal with our client matters every day. I and mean, we're just consumed with just trying to meet our deadlines and trying right. to just keep things moving along. And the uh, you know, a lot of times, I mean, it would be nice to be able to put the time in to really build out a lot of the stuff, you know. So that's I think why a lot of people are, you know, are interested in the book was mm-hmm. a shortcut for them. And at the end of the day, where our hope is not just the fast case tie-in, but actually we're in discussions with multiple case management companies about incorporating that content in and customizing their products so that they work with that book. Mm-hmm. We hope people really like fast cases the the software because we're you know mm-hmm. helping them to try and design something I think that's going to be really nice. But you know if, if they if somebody wants to use a different software for their case management, but still have access to that content. And that's the other mm-hmm. part of this, and hopefully rolling it out to other vendors as well. And Fastcase will be the one that I think we're, we're involved with the actual design of the product, but in just right. in terms of the content play, you know, there may be others.
2: Well, that's kind of the idea there is that, you know, your systems and processes theoretically should be tech agnostic for the most part. It shouldn't really care what tech you use, provided the tech has the ability to deal with all the functions and features and everything, but, you know, it shouldn't matter what technology you're using. But I also like this systems and processes. The thing you said back a little bit ago of, of there are hundreds of apps that you can spin out of these systems. And I think people forget that when you write these things down, when you put them down into processes, you can then look at them. You can look at them in a 30,000 foot view. You can look at them you know, very closely. And ideas, in my experience, come out of that. And bottlenecks you start to see bottlenecks you start to see things like that and be able to spin out some of the apps that you're talking about as well
3: that is the hope uh (laughs) as far as you
2: know
3: the hundreds of apps but even something like you know and then you know all these advisors and you know things that we can have but you know just something as simple as an you know an engagement letter which Mm -hmm. believe it or not for us was one of the toughest things that we had to develop was an app to automate our engagement letters at our firm Right. but you know that's something that's sort of like just the most basic of basic things that firms, you know, if you're looking for a little automation tool, you know, that would probably be one example of that. So it's a, you know, I would say if people are sort of looking like, you know, like what what can I get out of listening to this podcast today that, that might be useful, you know, that's one that, you know, document basic document automation is something that there's a lot of products that are out there that do it, but I mean for us that was one of the most useful things that we solved on the, uh, the law firm side was mm-hmm. coming up with that tool where we now, you know, the goal, we didn't want to have everybody using different versions of our, you know, it's like the telephone game with the, uh, you know, you give the engagement letter, the firm standard engagement letter to somebody, they make a little change on it and
2: mm-hmm.
3: then they'll browse it from them and, you know, and junior lawyer. And, and, and then you find out that, you know, you're in a, we're a 12 lawyer firm that you find out that there are not 12 different versions of the engagement letter, but probably like several hundred versions of the engagement letter that have yes. just been modified over the years. <laughs> but we were looking for things like, we're, you know, immigration lawyers bill everything on a flat fee basis, which I know is like music to the years of, uh, of, right. of, of, of practice management uh, consultants. But, you know, having our fee our fee schedule feed into the app so that you, you know, you do a drop down, you pick the kind of case you're going to be doing, and it will automatically feed in there what the fee is. And then it asks you like a lot of detailed questions about, you know, how are you doing benchmarks? Are you doing hourly? Are you doing, you know, and all, all those kinds of things. It asks for a particular kind of case. It may give you options for different, different kinds of causes. But the idea is that we wanted to have something that would be fast for the lawyers that would preserve consistency across the firm. Also something that would be convenient for clients. So at the end of this, it basically, you know, sets it up for e-signatures for the clients on the, uh, on the engagement letter. And then we'll dump into our case management system or our document management system at the end. You know, that being said, that's something that people figure, I don't know what I would use, you know, what, what, what I would automate. Mm -hmm. That's like the one common thing that every firm law firm in the country could probably benefit is from having some automation on their engagement letter. And it's probably one of the things that's the biggest pain in the neck and slowing things down at a firm when they do that. So that's one basic thing that uh, we we did that I feel like even if somebody, but I'm like, I never, I'm never i never taking an immigration case. I don't care what he's talking about on this, but the engagement letter. And we we do that on our mass well, I didn't mention, but we, we are involved in mass litigation as yeah. well. Cases we, we sue with three other law firms and sometimes hundreds of plaintiffs in a case and we basically adapted that engagement letter mm-hmm. to something that we build for each case that we're doing, where our plaintiffs go through a little interview, and then it builds out an engagement letter for them, which they sign online, they want to be in the case. And then also it interviews them and builds out a de- sworn declaration as well, which we need for the case as well. And they sign that online as well. And that's, you know, for lawyers that are doing litigation, that's probably something that would save a lot of time as well, is that, you know, where are you constantly, bumping up against headaches in your cases and you know these declarations are an example of that that's what you need to look for it's like what are you doing over and over again that you could potentially let it you know turn over to a computer
2: you know i think that's great advice and that's probably good advice to end on what what are you doing over and over again that you can turn over to a computer and why is it engagement letters <laughs> you know it, that's the first thing that you can get into i think that's great advice greg Greg, I really appreciate you being with us. I know you're you're a lot of places at a lot of times now, you were just at the ABA tech show, depending on when this airs, you know, talking about AI and, and legal technology and talking about your, your fast case venture and things like that. So I, I certainly appreciate you being with me. Thank you, enjoyed it.
0: The Lawyerist Podcast is edited by Brittany Felix. Are you ready to implement the ideas we discuss here into your practice? Wondering what to do next? Here are your first two steps. First, if you haven't read the Small Firm Roadmap yet, grab the first chapter for free at Lawyerist.com forward slash book. Looking for help beyond the book? Let's chat about whether our coaching communities are right for you. Head to Lawyerist.com forward slash community forward slash lab to schedule a 10 minute call with our team to learn more. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.